Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Amen. Well, Shabbat Shalom. We're in a series on 1 John. Today is part 9. Uh, we're going to look today at the first part of chapter 3. We'll be in chapter 3 for several weeks. And the theme today of the incredible love that the Father has bestowed and lavished on us through Yeshua the Messiah. So turn with me to 1 John 3, the beginning in the first three verses on the next slide. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that's what we are. The reason the world doesn't know us is that it didn't know him. Dear friends, beloved, now we are children of God, And what we shall be hasn't yet been made known. But we know that when Messiah appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in them, and hope in him, purify themselves, just as he is pure. Amen. This passage in the original language actually starts out with an outburst. Uh, John is writing this letter to his congregations Instructing them on, on a variety of themes. And, the, of course, the overall theme of First John is the assurance of your faith. But when he gets to this spot, he suddenly has an outburst. Uh, he exclaims, again, First John 3, verse 1, How great is the love of the Father that he's lavished on us, that we should be called his children, children of God. And indeed, that's what we are. That's who we are. Now, John's writing this letter as an old man. And only one thing matters to him, Yeshua. A famous early church historian, Eusebius, from the 3rd century, preserves a story about John's ministry from the last years of John's life. Now, this is, story is not in the Bible. It's an extra-biblical account. And according to this account, John, as an old man, had won this young man to the Lord, to Yeshua, and was discipling him. And he was about to go on a trip, so he said to the bishop of the town, please take care of this young man for me while I'm gone. So when he returned from the trip, John said to the bishop, where's this young man that I left in your charge? And the bishop said, alas, he's dead. He's dead to the Lord. He's fallen back in with old friends and back into a life of crime. And now he lives as one of the leaders of a band of robbers up in the mountains, Uh, where no one can go, because if anyone tries to get near their hideout, they're killed. So the bishop said, he's dead. He's dead to God. At this point, John rips his cloak in grief and says, get me a horse. So John gets on a horse, rides up into the mountains where it's death to go. And when he gets there, the robbers grab him. And he says, that's fine. I wanted to be captured. Take me to your leader's. And they bring John to the leaders, and one of them is this young man whom John had discipled. The young man immediately recognizes John. And although he's armed, uh, he panics, he begins to run away, and John runs after him. And he cries out, why flee from me? I'm an old, unarmed man. Don't you see there's still hope of life for you? Uh, I'll I'll gladly suffer death for you, uh, as the Lord suffered death for me. I'll give my own life in exchange for yours. Stop. Listen. Trust me. Hearing these words, 
the man stops. He hurls away his weapons, and in trembling, he begins to weep bitterly, and he repents, and he comes back to the Lord. Now, where does John get that kind of courage, that kind of boldness, that kind of confidence? Well, John explains it here. He says, we have fellowship with God. He says, you can know the Lord, not just know about him. He says, you can know the presence of the Lord of glory in your heart, in your soul. And if you know God, he says, you will have an an impregnable and an unassailable joy uh, that nothing can take away from you. There's nothing that can defeat this supernatural joy. Uh, There's nothing you need to fear. If you have this, you can face anything. I'm an old man, John says. I know how many problems you can have in your life. But if you have this joy of knowing Yeshua, you're not afraid of anything. And so the whole book of 1 John is about what it means to know God. As you saw in chapter 1, John shows us how to know God uh, by receiving the gospel of, of Yeshua the Messiah as your Lord, being born again in him from above, uh, with the Lord writing his word on your heart, giving you a new heart, filling you with his spirit. And then in chapter 2, it's all about how you can know that you know God. And on the overhead, we talked about this. There's the one subjective te- internal test uh, of the witness of the spirit, and these three external objective tests uh, of your character uh, and, and obedience to God, Uh, the love test of loving others, uh, and the doctrinal test of of, of truth. But now in chapter 3, John begins to explain why it's possible to know God. Uh, He actually begins this explanation back in 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. 1 John 2, 28. He says, And now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he's righteous, you know that everyone who does what's right has been born of him. John says knowing God is not a matter of effort. Uh, It's not a matter of mechanics. It's not a matter of trying harder. You have to be be born again and adopted into his family. And then here in chapter 3, John now begins to emote. He's instructing us, but now all of a sudden he begins to emote. You can't tell this too well from this translation we read from earlier. The King James actually is a better translation here. Uh, John begins the chapter by saying, behold. Look at 1 John 3, 1. Uh, in the, the King James, behold, how great is the love which the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. Now, there's a subject of this outburst, which we're going to look at briefly. But then I want us to focus on, on the fact of the outburst itself. Uh, what does the fact of these outbursts teach us? Well, why does he suddenly... Begin to emote. Well, the fact of the outburst tells us a great deal about what it means to know God. The subject of the outburst is a truth. Again, John says in 1 John 3, 1, Behold, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that's what we are. Now, there's a truth here that John's trying to teach us. First of all, notice this word lavished. Uh, It's an odd term to be used with the word love. Because it's a word in Greek that literally means to make a present or to bestow on someone. Uh, King James says this, this, 1 John 3, 1. uh, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us. 
And it's a little odd because you normally say, well, uh, I love this person. You don't say, I bestow my love on them. The word bestow, again, means to actually give someone to someone in an event. The only human analogy we have, of course, is marriage. Uh, You're in love with someone, but at a certain point in time, you summon up all your love, you stand before friends and family and in the presence of God, and you bestow your love on your spouse. You give your love to someone in such a way that it permanently changes both of your lives. So there's a sense in which, of course, God loves all his creation and all his people, but to be a believer isn't simply to have the Lord love you in this general sense, but there's a moment in which you cross a line. And God actually brings his love at a certain point in time into your life, and it changes you forever. It revolutionizes you. What is this? John tells us, again, 1 John 3, 1, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. John's saying, first, when God bestows his love on us, he calls us his children, children of God. Uh, He he gives us this name, the the name of his children. He gives us the status. We're adopted. As, As Yeshua says in John 17, 23, Father, I want you to love them even as you love me. I want you to wipe out all their sins and receive them as if they were me. I want you to bring them into our family. So we're called children of God. We're given this title. But then second, John goes on to say, we're not just called children of God. We are. We're not just, we're not just legally children of God. We're actually children of God. It's not just that we have the status But God actually puts in us the nature of the children of God. We're born again. He gives us his divine nature, the family likeness. The Holy Spirit's own power comes in and begins to transform you into the image of Yeshua. Uh, And so there's this transforming moment when you move from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Being a Yeshua follower is to receive God's love in such a way that legally Your status is changed. It's it's changed forever so that your sins are wiped out and the Lord accepts you as perfectly righteous in him and in his sight. And then secondly, you're renewed from the inside. Uh, You're born again. That's what it means to be a Yeshua follower. That's the truth that John is teaching us here. Uh, That's the subject uh, of his outburst. But what's even more important uh, and even more amazing is the very fact of the outburst. Why does John suddenly go crazy? Why does he suddenly go ballistic? What is this teaching us? It teaches us three things about knowing God on the overhead. First, it teaches us the way to know God on the overhead, please. Uh, What does it mean to know God? John's saying it's not enough to know about God. You have to know him. It's not enough just to know certain theological truths, but to personally experience God. Now, what does that mean? Uh, And what's so wonderful here is that John doesn't just tell us to know God, but he actually does it right here in front of us. Do you know what he's doing here in verse 1? He's doing it. He's knowing God right before your eyes. He's talking about God, and all of a sudden, he's knowing him. He's saying, we're born again. We've been brought into God's kingdom, and God's in the family of God. 
And then suddenly he says, Hine, Hineni, uh, uh, behold, on the overhead. This is what it means to know God. Knowing, uh, uh, knowing God is where the truth overflows your mind into all the rest of you. It's from the truth about God, or the truth of, of who you are in Messiah, the truth about Yeshua, Messiah himself. It's when this realization and this apprehension, this appropriation, this internalization of this truth makes your rationality go, go crazy so that your rationality can't handle it anymore. And it bubbles up uh, and it flows out. It goes ballistic in your life. Uh, you can't keep it just in your mind anymore. It flows out into your feelings. It flows out into your will. It flows out into your emotions. It flows out into every part of you. What it means to know God is when the truth flows out into the rest of you, from your mind, into every part of your being. When you just don't know, but when you see it. God doesn't just say, I know that God has done this. He says, behold. It's where the truth goes through your life like lightning goes through a lightning rod. And you actually see John doing it here. John says again, John 3, 1 John 3, 1. Behold, how great is the love of the Father that he's lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God. And that's what we are. The emphasis here in the Greek is indeed, this is who we are. And the overhead. In knowing God, there's a movement from analysis to intuition. Truth moves from just being something you understand to something you stand under. It moves from just being something you know about and it overshadows you. It moves from just from something you know about in a detached matter, in a detached manner, and all of a sudden you begin to see all the connections. And you start to say, if this is true, this changes everything. If this is true, how can I be worried about this? How can I be angry about that? How can I be depressed? How can I be be afraid of this? Here's when you know you've moved from knowing about God to knowing God. It's when some truth you've known before, you've known the idea before, suddenly, at the very same moment, it's like something, it's, it, it appears to you like something so ancient that you've never not known it, and yet, at the same time, you've never really known it before. It's like it, you first perceived it this very second. It seems absolutely new to you. When you take a biblical truth, maybe you've heard it all your life, and all of a sudden, it gets more ancient and more new at the very same time. It's absolutely astonishing. It moves from your mind into your heart. It moves from analysis to intuition. It moves from understanding to standing under. It moves from seeing it in a detached way to seeing how it connects with everything. Behold, it moves from knowing to beholding. Now, it's hard for people to understand, for us to understand this today. It seems almost too mystical. You know, in the 19th, back in the 1960s, there was this reaction against uh, intuitional, uh, I'm sorry, institutional conformity, uh, and the establishment, the so-called plastic culture and organizational man, uh, the, the corporate drone in the gray flannel suit, you know, where everything looked, everybody looked and acted the same, we were cogs in, in a corporate machine. Everything was mechanical and robotic. Everyone knew their place. And so in, beginning in the 60s, in reaction against all this, people said, ah, what we need is experience. And they turned to the East. They turned to Hinduism and transcendental meditation uh, and, and Buddhism. They turned to the New Age. They turned to the old Greco-Roman paganism. You see, there's a kind of non-biblical mysticism 
that says, if you want to experience the infinite, it has to be anti-rational or or non-rational. But that's not the way biblical experience works. That's not the way knowing God works. You don't say, it's not important to study the Bible. It's not important to know doctrine. I just want to know God. But there's no other way to know God than through what he's revealed to us. And his primary revelation is through his word. The way you know God is is when the truth is revealed in his word is internalized and becomes real to you. Uh, And it makes you go crazy with excitement and, and the realization of the love of God flowing into your soul and flooding it. It's when the truth goes ballistic, overflows into every part of your life. That's the important thing. It's not anti-rational or non-rational, but it's also more than just rational. John cries out, behold, he's overwhelmed by the love of God in Messiah Yeshua. Here's an example. Imagine a little boy walking along with his father. The boy knows his father loves him. He knows he's the son of the father. But all of a sudden, the father picks up his son, uh, hugs him, kisses him, Whispers in his ear, I love you, and I'll do anything, even die if necessary, to give you anything you need. And the boy begins to weep for joy. Now, what's going on here? Is the boy getting any new information? Is he more of a son than he was a moment before? Does he know anything new? No, not a thing. He doesn't get any new idea, but an idea becomes new. He doesn't get new information, but the information becomes new. He newly experiences his father's love. What it means to know God is you feel his hug. That's what's going on here in 1 John 3. Behold, John is being hugged. For him, the truth gets radioactive. You cannot control this. You can't put God in a box or make him perform on command. He's not a tame lion. We talked about this last week, if you were here, about this messianic understanding of the creative arts and literature. This understanding that says all the great literature, all the great stories that you love, all the tales that move you are ultimately really about Yeshua. For the believer, every story, therefore, is two stories. Every song is two songs. If you're a believer, then yes, you are going to fly like Peter Pan. (laughs) If you're a Yeshua follower, Follower, yes, there is a handsome prince who's going to come and raise you up uh, from, from, from sleep, the sleep of death. If you're a believer, someday a beauty will come and kiss you. And although you're a beast, he will make you into something gorgeous. You know, and Beauty and the Beast in the movie, uh, when you see the beast that, that's dead, he's dead at the end of the movie, and suddenly he's picked up, and all this light uh, starts to hit his body, and he's transformed into this gorgeous prince. If you're a Messianic believer, you can't help see that and, and say, that's what's going to happen to me. 2 Corinthians three eighteen, And we are with unveiled face, beholding the Lord as in a glass, we're transformed from one degree of splendor to the next. 1 John 3, verse 2, Behold, we don't know what we're going to be, but when he appears... We know we'll be like him. We will see him as he is. You will be transformed. 
There is a beauty that will kiss you and, and make you from a beast into a beauty. There is a Superman who came from another planet into this world with supernatural powers. Every one of these stories is true on some level. If you are a Yeshua, Yeshua follower, this is your future. When you're overwhelmed with the love of God in Yeshua, it becomes radioactive. Your mind goes crazy. And it flows out, uh, out of your rationality into your whole being. It can be very strong. It can be very subtle. It's subject to degrees. I remember a while back, for example, I was just uh, reading over, I was meditating on Isaiah 53. I came to verse 11, Isaiah 53, verse 11. And the result of his suffering, he'll see and be satisfied. And all of a sudden it struck me. The result of his suffering, he'll see and be satisfied. Now, Now I said to myself, wait a minute. Yeshua suffered infinitely. He suffered an infinite debt. He suffered a depth, a depths that you and I will never fully comprehend. So what could be so valuable to him, what could be so satisfying to him, that it would be compensation for that? Think of his infinite agony. Think of, of his infinite torment. What could be so satisfying and fulfilling and valuable to him that he could look at that and say, for that it's all worth it. And the answer is you and you. And you and me, if you're his. And the second half of the verse proves this, bears it out. Look at it again, Isaiah 53, 11. And the result of his suffering, he'll see and be satisfied. Why? For by knowledge of him, i.e. by knowing him, my righteous servant will justify many. And he will bear their iniquities. By bearing our iniquities, our sins on the cross, on the tree, Yeshua justifies us. He makes us righteous. By his suffering, Yeshua wins us to his kingdom if we repent and put our trust in him. This is what's so satisfying and fulfilling of our souls, your souls, that his infinite suffering would be worth it to him. And then it struck me. My forgiveness, my healing. He looks at my salvation and he's satisfied. He gets joy. He's consoled for all his incomprehensible agony. And in meditating on that, my my own rationality started to go crazy. Uh, Of course, I've known this basic truth uh, uh, ever since becoming a believer back in college. I'm a messianic rabbi. Of course I know this. But at that point, I started not just knowing it, but beholding it. I said, wait a minute. If this is true, and it is, uh, then why am I bored? Why am I unhappy? Why am I worried? Why am I mad? And I knelt down and I praised the Lord. It was a very magnificent time with him. Now, you cannot program this. You can't just read this passage again. I can't just read this passage again and automatically uh, uh, expect the, the same results. God is not a vending machine. You can't put your money in and expect a guaranteed result to pop out. You can never get to Narnia the same way twice. Yeshua, the lion of the tribe of Judah, he's not a tame lion. You cannot have him in your pocket. This is part of the adventure, the adventure of messianic faith. It's not a mere legal code. 
It's not rote or routine or external or a matter of ritual or, 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 or um, repetition. Sometimes you'll have a quiet time in the morning. It'll warm your heart a little. But other times, the truth, it will bubble up. It'll overflow your mind. It'll electrify your soul. And you'll never forget it. Now you ask, how does this happen? You have to seek it. Matthew 11, verse 12. The kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. You must pursue it with purpose and intentionality. You have to know it's possible and pursue the Lord, even as a bride pursues her husband in the Song of Solomon. In 1 John 2, John says, if you're not experiencing God like this, he says, examine yourself. Ask yourself, am I obeying God? Is my conscience clear of all known sin? You know, if you're disobeying the Lord, if you have a guilty conscience, you're never going to experience this intimacy. Second, John says, are you walking in love? Do you, you have regular fellowship with other believers? Are you praying with them, sharing God's word together? Are you building each other up? Are you walking in forgiveness? Are you keeping short accounts? If you're not walking in love and forgiveness, if you're not fellowshipping with other believers, John says you're not going to experience this overwhelming, beautiful presence of God. And then third, John says, are you affirming the key core doctrines of the faith and the truths? Are you studying them, meditating on them, reflecting on them? Ask God to search your heart, to reveal his truth to you as set forth in his word. And if you're doing these three things, John says, at some point you will begin to behold the Lord. So this great outburst in 1 John 3 verse 1, it shows us what it means to know God. Again, it's when beholding the truth overflows your mind, makes your rationality go crazy, it flows out into all the rest of your life, and you feel his embrace. You can know the Lord. And you know him through the truth, through beholding these truths on the overhead. That's the way of knowing God, number one. Number two, what's the, the mark of knowing God? Is that you see, one of the marks of knowing God is to see his love for you as a miracle. The NIV says in 1 John 3, 1, see how great, the word great here is the one I'm going to camp on, is the Father's love for us. Again, the King James is actually a better translation here. It says, 1 John 3, 1, behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us. The NIV is, the problem here, NIV is translating a particular Greek word, this word great, but the problem is that the word is an idiom. Uh, idioms are very hard to translate. So, for example, we have an idiom in English. It's, it's raining cats and dogs. If you're trying to translate that into Chinese or Korean or Hindi or Hebrew, you translate it literally, they're going to stare at you. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> you have to find an idiom that they use in their language uh, that's, that's parallel or similar in meaning. Well, the Greek here literally says, behold what country this love comes from. Or, from what country does this love come from? And what it's saying is, from what planet? <laughs> How unreal. This is off the scale. Uh, it's meant, I've mentioned this old movie before, um, The Fisher King, which Amanda Plummer plays this really klutzy, mousy, dysfunctional, socially awkward uh, wallflower. She has no friends. Robert Williams comes, takes her on a date. At the end of the date, she says to him, that was really nice, but don't ever call me again. 
Because if you ever really got to know me, you wouldn't like me. And I can't handle a rejection. So let's just end it here. And Robin Williams, he says, but I do know you. I know you think you're awkward. I know you think you're clumsy. But I want you to know, I know that I know who you are and I love you. And I will never leave you. And I will never forsake you. And she stares at him. And she looks into what she thought was the heart of an enemy. And instead, she sees their understanding and love. And she says, are you real? This is a miracle that you love me. And that's what this idiom in 1 John 3, 1 is trying to get across. What manner of love, from what country, from what planet does this great love come from? That the Father has bestowed upon us in Yeshua. And here's a key test of whether you're an actual Yeshua follower or whether you're just a moral person or a religious person. A real Messianic believer is someone who says, it's an absolute miracle that God loves me. It's just a miracle that I'm a Yeshua follower, a miracle of God, of his mercy, of his grace. And the overhead, this is an acid test. Because there are two kinds of people who go to shul, who go to church. Religious people and real born-again believers. And the way you can tell the difference is that a real Yeshua follower is someone who sees everything that comes to him as a gift. A real believer sees that he or she is totally in God's debt on the overhead, but a religious person who's someone who's working hard and making an effort and trying to be good and going to shul and saying no to temptation and mortifying the flesh and by doing so, trying to put God in their debt. That's the difference. A religious person, consciously or unconsciously, is trying to save themselves by their good works. Indeed, sometimes they actually make this surprisingly explicit. Uh, so, for example, after the destruction of the temple, rabbinic Judaism arose with a, with a new theology that said we no longer need blood sacrifice to atone for our sins. Forget that half the Torah is about blood sacrifice uh, and the priesthood and the tabernacle. Forget that Leviticus 17.11 says without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. That's uh, on the next Leviticus 17.11, next, next slide. Uh... Again, you're getting behind. Anyways, we'll find it. <laughs> Instead, the, the rabbis who rejected Yeshua and rejected his blood atonement, uh, they made up a new religion, and they said, now we, all we need now is tefillah, uh, teshuva, tzedakah. Uh, prayer, repentance, and, and, and good deeds. Thank you. Uh, and they still here to make it explicit. They say our own good deeds, our own Torah observance will save us. But again, they just erased half the Torah. They claim Torah observance, they've erased half the Torah. The half is all about blood sacrifice uh, and priesthood and temple and tabernacle. On the overhead, now on the overhead, religious person who's someone who, there we go, uh, who, who tries in essence to save themselves by their own human effort. A religious person tries to put God in their debt by their own mitzvot, their own good deeds. In contrast, a, a true believer is someone who says, who sees themselves in God's debt. So here's the acid test. If you're a real Yeshua follower, you have a spirit of wonder. A spirit of wonder that, that permeates your life. You're always saying, how, how miraculous, uh, how interplanetary. 
How unreal is the fact that God saves someone like me? An unworthy wretch like me. Isn't it amazing grace that I'm a Messianic believer? Incredible, miraculous, unbelievable. It's almost a divine joke. But in contrast, for a religious person trying to put God in his or her debt, there's none of that spirit of wonder at all. So, for example, you're employed uh, by a company. You show up to collect your paycheck. Do you say, when, you, when you collect your paycheck, do you say, wow, behold, you paid me. <laughs> You've given me money. <laughs> Are you real? <laughs> you don't do that. Of course not. Of course you, you say, of course you paid me. I worked, you paid me, I earned it, you owed it to me. Now, if you ask a religious person, a person who does not understand God's grace, if you ask him, are you a believer? Often they will say, of course I am. Of course I'm a believer, sure I am. My friends, if you are a real messianic believer, there's no sure about it. There's no of course about it. Not a bit. An acid test is your spirit of wonder. And that your spirit of wonder remains even in bad times. When things go bad. When problems happen. Here's you tell the difference between a a, a moralist and a true Yeshua follower. A moralist says, what good is all my religion? What good is is coming to God? What good is all my obedience? I tried really hard. I tried hard to follow all the rules and do all the rituals and be obedient to God. Uh, And what good is it all? What has it gotten me? God owes me and he's not coming through. He's not living up to his end of the bargain. And therefore you get mad at God. I've been trying really hard, but look what's all this wrong going on in my life. Look what's going wrong in my my love life. Look, Look what's going wrong in my marriage. Let's look what's going wrong with my kids. Look what's going wrong in my career. And you get bitter. Why? Because God owes you. But a true, a true follower, a true believer keeps that spirit of wonder. And a real believer says, well, yes, my career is not going too well at the moment. My romantic relationships aren't going too well. But it's astonishing. It's amazing. The Lord is as good as he is to me. It's all grace. It's all his incredible mercy on the overhead. That spirit of wonder, that sense of your salvation uh, being a miracle, that sense of everything that comes to you being an absolute mercy, that's an acid test. My brothers and sisters of Eschheim, to the degree you behold the free grace of God, to the degree you meditate on it, and you let it become a holy fire in your heart, to the degree you experience and behold The love of God, to that degree, in the midst of difficulties, you will still nonetheless be able to say uh, on the the overhead, my father must have a purpose here because he loves me. And besides that, he doesn't owe me a good life. Truth be known, he owes me a far worse life than I've got. And if that's your attitude, you can handle anything. And when good things come, you say, behold, what a miracle. And the fact that you can get up in the morning and say, I'm a Yeshua follower. Who would have thought it? There's a spirit of wonder about you. And if, you, and if you've lost that spirit, 
If you're slipping back, you're slipping back into moralism. Oh, you're slipping back into religion. You're slipping back into thinking your relationship with God is due to your efforts on the overhead. But a born again Yeshua follower says, Can it be that a wretch like I should be covered by his blood? Die he for me who caused his pain? For me to him to death pursued? Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, wouldst die for me? The result of his suffering he'll see and be satisfied. This wonder is a mark that you know the Lord. The ability to handle anything with a sense of almost childlike wonder. A sense of it all being a miracle. That's a sign you know him. And if that wasn't amazing enough, John then says, 1 John 3, verse 2, Beloved, now we're children of God, and what we shall be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Messiah appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Hallelujah. <laughs> Hallelujah. If you are a Yeshua follower, the climax of your life, the apex, is to see him as he is, the zenith. Right now, you see him by faith. But then, panim el panim, face to face. This is your destiny. This beautific vision, beatific vision, this visio day. To behold the Lord and to be changed into his image. If your life is a symphony, this is the final chord it's all building up to. If your life is a book, this is the climax. If you are a Yeshua follower, you know that you are destined to see him face to face. And this is what we're told about the, how, how powerful this truth is. That even now, even beforehand, 1 John 3 verse 3. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. What kind of experience is this? That even, even to, just to want it, uh, to long for it, purifies you. John here says, even to want it, that the hope in it begins to transform you. Romans 8 says that um, nature is currently subject to decay. It's, it's withering, it's falling apart. And then Paul says this in Romans 8, 21. Nature itself groans and yearns to be liberated from its bondage to decay. He says this again, Romans 8, 21, next uh, slide. Creation looks forward to the day in which it will be liberated from its bondage to decay. How? Through the freedom of the children of God. It's when we see him face to face. Because then we'll experience the complete transformation that occurs when you behold the Lord. The glory that will, that will come upon you and be so infused into you will be so great that you will bring all of nature, all of creation with you. The glory that, that God bestows upon you when you see him face to face will be so great that it will envelop the entire created order. The more you see Yeshua as he really is, the more you become like him. And on the last day, when you behold him as he is, you will be conformed to his image. You'll become like him. You'll be glorified, Romans 8 says. On the overhead, C.S. Lewis says this. We want something in all of our other passions that can hardly be put into words. To be united with the beauty we see. To pass into it. 
to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. We must take the scripture seriously. That God one day will give us the morning star and cause us to put on the splendor of the sun. And that these prophecies one day will become true. At present, we're on the outside of the world. The wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and the purity of the morning. But they don't make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see. But all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the revelation that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. When human souls become as perfect in voluntary obedience as inanimate creation is in its lifeless obedience, then we will put on the glory, the greater glory, of which nature is only the first sketch. And the Lamb will lead us to fountains of living water. Amen. Let's stand and pray. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you. I have the music team to come on up. Thank you, Lord. Father, thank you for this incredible love you've lavished on us in Messiah Yeshua. Help us to behold, to really enter into this amazing experience. We want your love to so overflow our minds and overflow out of our entire being, mind, will, motion, body, soul, spirit. So it's not just merely something we intellectually understand, but we stand under. We stand under your love. We let it flow down into our entire self and transform us from the inside out. Thank you, Lord, for the finished work of Yeshua uh, uh, and our trusting in him that we sinful wretches are now adopted into your family and become your children. (laughs) Amazing grace. We thank you. We bless you. We adore you. We exalt you. And you tell us, not only are we your children, if that wasn't good enough, but that one day, Yeshua, we will see you face to face and we change into your image and become like you. When we behold your face of love, it'll transform us. Lord, we can't wait till that day. It is so powerful, you tell us, that even just the hope in it now, to long for it, to look forward to it, has the power to purify us even now, to change our lives even now. Lord Yeshua, help us to ever have this hope before us of seeing you face to face. And may it cause us uh, to live for you and to walk with you in purity and in holiness and in righteousness. We pray this in your name, Yeshua. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Shalom.